0: All right, guys. This is another exciting Sunday at Salt City. One of the things that we have prayed from for the, from the beginning of our church is that God would raise us uh, to the campus. I remember standing on the campus at the University of Minnesota before we even planted Salt City with a friend, and we had seen kind of the scope of the campus and walked around a bunch. And we had noticed that there were a lot of minorities on campus at the U of M. And I remember specifically bowing our heads and asking that God would raise up a minority who would be a next generation pastor in our church. And it was the first week at Salt Company that I shook Tony's hand. And I just remember having this sense in that moment that Tony was that guy. From the Lord, and over the last several years, I've gotten to see God pour His grace into this young man's life and see him emerge as having an amazing ministry in our church, becoming a great preacher and a good friend as well, and he is a young man that I admire a lot and I'm looking forward to learning from him with you this morning. So if you would, uh, bow your head with me, let's pray for Tony. Uh, as he prepares to bring the word to us. Uh, Father, thank you so much for Tony, and thank you for how you have poured your grace into his life. Thank you uh, for giving me the opportunity to have a front row seat to see him fight the good fight of faith and take hold of the eternal life that you've given to him. I pray that you'd fill him up with your spirit Uh, that you give him clarity of thought and concision of speech this morning, that you'd speak through him by your spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
1: Amen. Thanks, Drew. Wow. That was really kind. Uh, Salt City, it it has been a true honor to be a part of this church family. And so even before I enter into the message, I just wanted to thank you for being the gospel-embodied family that I needed four years ago when I was a student on this campus. And the family I've needed ever since then. And so it has been such a joy to be here with you guys. And this morning, we're going to be continuing our series to the book of Philippians. And so if you have a Bible with me, I'd love if you would turn there. If you don't have one, we'd love to give you one. So please contact any one of our staff. But Philippians is near the end of your Bible. And we'll be continuing in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Philippians 3, 1 through 6. And here's my big idea this morning for my teaching. So if you have any notes or you write on the margins of your Bible or whatever you want to do, here's the big idea, that true joy is found outside of ourselves. One of the things that I do to myself that's like pretty consistently and dramatically bad for my quality of life is I ask the question why on like a way too frequent basis of everything humans do, okay? So that makes me super introspective and very like kind of weird around people. And I occasionally look out at the sunset and I'm like, why do people do this? Okay. So we're going to do that together, together as a family this morning. And the first question is kind of vague, but why do human beings do what we do? And then the second one is why does everyone that I know, including myself at times, kind of hate their job? Okay. So not super hate their job, just like mildly dislike, right? And, and maybe you're here and you're like, Tony, I don't hate my job, I like my job. You do until the next one, okay? You're on route to a promotion or a different job, but the vast majority of us don't like the jobs that we work. I remember when I was a student, I wanted to be in finance, and when I was in finance, I wanted to be in ministry, and now that I'm in ministry, I kind of miss finance. Like, why is this the human condition? I'm like, just seems like we go around in circles, right? Or why do we say goals? Or more importantly, why as a human species, as a part of the human experience, do we worship people who achieve those goals? Why do we go to The Rock's Instagram page and watch his 4 a.m. workouts and watch him eat a lot of pancakes and be like, that's amazing. Why do we do that as a human species? These are the questions I have all day long. It's a brutal. All right, here's why. Here's my, here's my big answer to the questions that I have on a pretty frequent basis. And I, here's, the, here's the answers that we have for ourselves this morning, is the reason why we do all those things is because human beings are perpetual resume builders. And here's what a resume actually is for the human experience. It is an argument for our existence. That if we could hold a certain title, if we could achieve the goals that we have set out to achieve, if we could accumulate all the accolades that we would like to accumulate by the end of our lives, that we would win this perpetual argument we have with humanity, that our lives are valuable valuable that were acceptable and applaudable. But not only do we do that with our material lives, but we do that with our spiritual lives. And I, I don't know about you, but I feel like 99% of my walk with Jesus, 1%, I'm like really content where I'm at, but 99% of the time, I'm either prideful that I've had a good week, that I've somehow impressed God, that I've read my Bible seven times and it's been really rich theological study, or I'm incredibly discouraged because I feel like God is disappointed in me. And I sit on this spiritual seesaw and I do that for the vast majority of my walk with Jesus because I'm constantly measuring myself on what I've done. But the reality is God knew that we would do that. He understood that the human condition would be far more bent towards receiving, towards earning than receiving and that we would spend our entire lives clawing at acceptance and righteousness, working so hard to earn his favor and man's favor, and working our way up the proverbial ladder of salvation only to find, at the end of the ladder, that's not what we hoped for. And here's why we're resume builders. It's because every single person in this room is desperately on a search for joy. And we've assumed that if we could just work hard enough to kinda get past our problems of the day, that eventually we would arrive at the destination of joy The type of joy that we dream of, but we've never actually fully experienced. The type of joy that you've always wanted to have and you've kind of every line item on your resume has been an inkling towards that and maybe even a glimpse of that, but that you've never actually tasted and seen. And in Philippians 3, 1 through 6, we're going to learn what it means to live a life of true joy. Not the momentary satisfaction of checking something off your list and checkbox Christianity or achieving your next goal or accolade, but true, undeniable joy—the type of joy you were born to live. Let's look at verse one. Today we're going to be in three different places: rejoice in the Lord, the cost of rejoicing, the cause of rejoicing, and the cost of rejoicing. Let's begin with rejoice in the Lord. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So Paul decides to start this next section of scripture with this word, finally. And the word is written to draw some sort of climax to the book of Philippians, okay? So um, it, it's, it's, made, it's written to make us pause and consider what Paul is about to say. And the original meaning of this word isn't so much to show finality as the end of something, but more of like an all-encompassing nature of something. So John Piper on this word his take is that it means something along the lines of as far as the rest is concerned. So as far as the rest is concerned, my brothers and sisters of Salt City Church, rejoice in the Lord. And this is the beautiful simplicity of Christianity. Everything else about following Jesus fades into the background as we focus in on this one exhortation that Paul gives us to rejoice in the Lord. And I want us to pause here and ask the question, why would Paul stop here at this point in Philippians and deeply emphasize the final and all-encompassing exhortation that he gives his brothers and sisters in the Lord about rejoicing, it's because everything in you and around you wants to sell you a vision for what you should rejoice in. Keller defines rejoicing like this. It should be up on our screens. What we rejoice in is whatever our central sweetness and comfort is in life. To rejoice in something is to treasure it, to access its value to you, to reflect on its beauty and importance until your heart rests in it and tastes the sweetness of it. What we rejoice in is central to our lives, but but the issue of rejoicing in Jesus in this cultural moment is that we have a counter-narrative in the ocean around us, and we're taught that the whole purpose of your life is about you. See, the idolatry of self is the most addicting idolatry that exists because we love the spotlight. We we live in a society, if you look around us, we live in a society that's developed this language around self. And if you've been around some people who don't know Jesus or a little bit outside of the Christian world, you'll understand that this is common language on what it looks like to have truth and joy. And they'll say things like this, that truth is found within you, that your joy is found within you. And so for you to live out true joy, all you need to do is look deep within yourself and define for yourself who you are and what makes you happy. And if you do that, you are promised true fulfillment and true joy because you have become the creator God of your life that has created the perfect environment for your own fulfillment. But alongside those promises, we live in a mental health epidemic. We live in a world that has looked within itself and has been disappointed about what we found. So logically speaking, if the promise of self-idolization given to us by our culture doesn't actually lead to joy, then the object of our joy must be wrong. So I say, I read this text and I was really convicted because honestly, the vast majority of my waking minutes, Jesus is not my central sweetness. He's actually not the thing that is the locus point of my life. And the reality is, if we really reflect on our lives, we would see that Jesus isn't our treasure. We are. That just as much as the culture around us, we have put ourselves in the pedestal of rejoicing, not Jesus as the pedestal of rejoicing. And so we live a life of worshiping ourselves. But as I was thinking about rejoicing in the Lord being the all-encompassing nature of Philippians and Christianity on the whole, I thought back to being a valet. So in college, I will spend almost every single weekend of my life at the W Hotel in Minneapolis, parking cars, okay? It was great. Uh, the Fauche Tower, that's what it is. We work for Manny Steakhouse, which has incredible steaks, and so if you want one, I don't get a discount, but I would for sure go with you. Um, it's really good. I highly recommend it, okay? Uh, so when they first trained me into valet, I came, came into this job and I was like, okay, I know how to park cars and I know how to drive. This should be easy, okay? No, wrong, Okay. They tell you about all these different things you need to do. First of all, I thought I knew how to open a car door, but apparently, this is how you do it. You put your hand behind your back, kind of bend over a little bit, open it, and bow to them. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. This is the most intense thing I've ever endured. Uh, secondly, you're not just a valet, but you're also a concierge. You're supposed to know like, all the best restaurants and bars in the city, which I was 18. I didn't drink. I was like, people are like, where's the best place to get this drink? I'm like, I'm 18 years old. I'm so sorry. I apologize. So that was fun. But at the end of a week's long training where I learned all these things that I didn't know about how to park cars, my manager told me, as far as the rest is concerned, everything else is important, but here's the most important thing. Don't crash cars. That's really helpful because it doesn't matter if I can open the door if it's wrapped around a pole. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it doesn't, it's not gonna help. It doesn't matter if I know all the best restaurants and bars if their $200,000 Lamborghini is totaled, which I would get fired for sure. So at the end of the day, don't crash cars. I think this is what Paul is saying. As far as the rest goes for Christianity in Philippians, rejoice in the Lord. And here's why this is such a pivotal point of his theological argument is because if you do not rejoice in the Lord, your life will be a shipwreck. Because even the good religious stuff that you do, you come to church, you read your Bible, you pray over people, you're nice to people. Guess what? If it's not for the Lord, it's for you. And then you will be the locus point of rejoicing for you and everyone else in your life, not King Jesus. So rejoice in the Lord. So the next question is, how? How do we rejoice in the Lord? Let's look at verse 2 for the cause of rejoicing. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for all those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So Paul does this really interesting theological thing where his main exhortation of this passage is rejoicing, and then he doesn't talk about it for the next 10 verses, okay? Here's what he talks about. He talks about uh, righteousness, faith, himself, dogs, mutilators of the flesh, whatever that means. Uh, but as I sat with this text, and I, I kind of looked a little bit deeper into it, I began to see the genius of it as he ties in a life of rejoicing with a life of righteousness, And to do that, he gives us a roadmap to rejoicing. And to do that, he starts with who we are, the circumcision. Don't get weirded out by that. Here's what that practically means for us, is that we Christians, the church, are the true heirs of Abraham, sealed by the promise of the covenant and the final resting place of God. We are the circumcision. And he gives us three markers to know what true Christianity, the real circumcision actually is. And the first one is, we are people who worship by the spirit of God. Look with me to verse three. And this is really, really important because we don't worship by singing or by reading or listening. We worship by the Spirit of God who chooses to move through those forms, yes, but those forms do not provide an end in and of themselves. And here's the genius of the enemy. He knows that we are so tempted to worship by the flesh and not by the Spirit that if he could create a system of religion where it mattered more about what you did on a day-to-day basis than what Jesus did for you on the cross, then we would be tempted into that system of religion because we are actually people who love to worship by the flesh and not by the spirit. But the issue is, when it's about what you do, it doesn't work. Like trying to find joy in yourself, worshiping yourself will result in absolute disappointment because you cannot carry the weight of your own worship. Secondly, we glory in Christ Jesus. Okay, here's what what happens when you meet Jesus, okay? He becomes the most beautiful person being everything in your life. Everything in your life gets eclipsed by the beauty of Jesus, and he becomes the new boast, the new treasure, the new love, the new joy. He becomes your glory. And it's only by the spirit that the object of worship could be transformed from ourselves to Jesus. And when this happens, when the object of your worship and your glory changes from you to him, your life begins to change. And not only does your life begin to change, but the way that you view God begins to change. This is a quote from Tim Keller. Religious people find God useful. Saved Christians find God beautiful. When you glory in Jesus, it's not about what God can do for you or what he's done for you in the past. It's about who he is And you begin to encounter the beautiful cadence and character of Jesus Christ himself. And lastly, we'll put no confidence in the flesh. When we understand that we worship not by our flesh, but by the spirit, and that the object is no longer ourselves, but the object of worship is Jesus, then we can know there's no confidence in the flesh because the flesh doesn't work. Finding joy in yourself doesn't work. Worshiping yourself doesn't work. And when you taste the real thing, the real beauty of Jesus you, were, you realize that you were made to worship him. Look back with me to verse two. The dogs, the evildoers, the mutilators of the flesh, those are people who worship themselves. If you worship yourself, you will be a dog, a name given to Gentiles that lived in the futility of their flesh. You will be an evildoer, a Pharisee that did religious acts out of broken motives. You will be a mutilator of the flesh. Marking yourself with the things of God rather than glorying actually in God. That will be your life. I was, I was born in South Korea, and a few years ago, we got the opportunity to travel back to South Korea, and it was incredible. Uh, we went paragliding, which was genuinely terrifying, okay? And here's why. It's because you run off a cliff. Like, that's actually what you do. You're like, no, you don't. You're tandem. No, you actually do. You move your little legs, and you run off a cliff, Okay? <laughs> Uh, it was terrifying. Let me just say, they, when they gave me the instructions, this is all they said, which I can only kind of speak Korean. So I was like, okay, I kind of get it. They were like, don't stop running. And I'm like, okay. And I'm like taking notes on my hand, like that matters, right? I'm like, yeah, don't stop running. Okay, I can do that. And they're like, yeah, if you do stop running, here's what could happen. Your foot could get caught at the edge of the cliff and you might go down instead of out. And I'm like, I'm not going to stop running till my feet land on the ground 15 minutes later. Like that is really good instruction. So... I'm sitting there, they strap me in, I'm terrified, they say, run, and I'm like, oh gosh. So we start running, and all I can think about is don't stop running, don't stop running, don't stop running, don't stop running. Until my thoughts weren't about my legs, but I began to encounter the beauty of creation. As we lifted off the little cliff, and my feet kept, keep going. (laughs) I was doing that for a while and then it just stopped. We, we were flying 15 minutes through the mountainsides of Korea. And there were villages and waterfalls and streams below us. And I don't remember a time I felt more alive than that. And it was full of joy. And the reason why is because I was captivated by the creation, not in jail to my own thoughts. I wasn't thinking about the tuition I had to pay when I get back. I wasn't thinking about the C minus I got on my calc final that year, which was tough. I wasn't thinking about any of that. I was just taking in the creation. Salt City, imagine the joy that you will feel one day when you just take in the creator that created that creation. How much more? How much more will we experience true joy? And we get to taste that now. And here's what it looks like to live a worshipful life. It looks like seeing the hand of God on every painful moment and every beautiful moment you've ever lived. To know that if you are in Christ, he is with you, steadfast, step by step, walking with you in your life. And worship looks less like having really good Maverick City worship moments and more like walking with Jesus day by day, knowing that he's actually that good. He's actually that beautiful. And it's the act of taking your eyes off of your own circumstances to put them on the glory of Christ, to see him more clear than you've ever seen him before. That's worship. And you can do that 24-7, seven days a week, 365 days a year. That's the opportunity you have if you're a Christian. But this joy, this worshipful joy isn't free. So let's look at the cost of rejoicing in verse 4. Though I myself have confidence for the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has confidence for the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So this text is often referred to as Saul's pedigree. Saul was pre-conversion Paul. Okay? So let me just break it down for you. First of all, he was circumcised on the eighth day. Perfect timing. They knew he was going to be a Jew. Two. He was of the people of Israel, the perfect chosen people. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. This was a tribe that the first original king came out of, King Saul, named after. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a full-blood Jew. He was a Pharisee, which was a religious elite. In fact, Paul was a Pharisee that ascended beyond many of his own years, years. So he was like the best of the best religiously in Jerusalem. He was a persecutor of the church. So not only was he incredibly religious and had position, he was also an incredible leader that led people towards persecuting the bride of Christ. He was righteous. He was really, really good at keeping the law. And here's why it's important to understand Saul's pedigree. The Jewish Saul was powerful, rich, and successful. He was a young protege who would study at the feet of Gamaliel, who was kind of the head Pharisee, and the Pharisees tasked him with leading the persecution against the church. And the reason why he could have confidence in the flesh is because people worship him, and so did he. He worshiped himself. He was the object of his own worship. And he had achieved everything in life there was to achieve, the power, the success, the money, the religious applause of Jerusalem, yet it wasn't enough. Because like every one of us here, he was perpetually building a resume. But in a moment, by the Spirit of God, Saul transformed to Paul. And here's what happened. Saul was a prideful Pharisee, who led the persecution against the bride, Paul became a humble servant who laid his life down for the bride. That was gospel transformation. And as Paul received the gift of righteousness, the righteousness of Christ given by the Spirit, he realized that it was far more valuable than any of the line items on his resume. And so in verse eight, he says that he counted all those things as rubbish in the comparing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. And because of that, Paul can rejoice in the Lord for he knows that him rejoicing in his own flesh led him to be an evil doer a Pharisee that did religious things out of broken motives and a mutilator of the flesh someone who is marked with God without doing the thing without glorying in God and the cost to receive true joy was everything that he was his whole pedigree a loss but what he gained was everything who Jesus was the kingdom of God as i Look at this text, I, I see myself a lot in Paul, actually. And um, when we first moved here to the United States, uh, my parents' college degrees didn't apply. And so we, uh, I remember when I was six years old and both my parents were working minimum wage jobs and taking language classes in the evening to learn English. They couldn't speak the language. And I remember having a conversation with my dad when I was six years old. And um, he, he told me, Tony, you're gonna have to work twice as hard as all your friends for the same results. And I remember that line so clearly like it was yesterday because as I trace back the story of my life, it was that day that I became a workaholic. And not in its full, but in a seed form. And and when I got to college, this is how I lived my life like Saul, I built my resume. And And I went to school and I graduated in three years and I worked three jobs and paid for school. And on the altar of building my resume, I sacrificed all my relationships, my friendships, my family, and most importantly, my relationship with Jesus. And I gained the whole world, but I lost my soul. And Saul said, I, I really believed it. Like, I really believed that if I could climb out of this hole of poverty, that I would finally taste joy. That real joy, that joy of satisfaction, and the joy that I've always dreamed of, I really believed that could happen. But instead, it left me incredibly broken. And like Saul... Jesus met me in my brokenness. And he began to transform me through worship. As I began to take my eyes off of myself and cast them onto Jesus as the object of my worship changed from me to him. I tasted joy, which is freedom from yourself. And it cost me career ambition, it cost me self-righteous workaholism, but it gained me Jesus. So I said, here's a call for all of us here this morning. It's the cost for you to be in on the family of God is to rip up your resume. And there's room in the family for you. And here's the thing. A resume is like this. I want to do so well that people, and maybe even God, worships me. I want to be the God of my own life, looking deep within myself to figure out who I am and therefore creating the world that I want. The reality is, God won't break the Ten Commandments. He will not worship you. He will not put any other gods before Him. But He would break His Son for you, and that's the reality. Is the true cost to joy was on the cross, and righteousness was given through the death of His own Son. For the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross. That joy was your salvation and your joy today. So the cost is for you to rip up your resume but Jesus paid the ultimate cost so that you could experience true joy. Let me pray. Father, what a joy it is to know you. And as we enter back into worship, as we take communion, Father, I pray that you would remind us of how beautiful you are, that you have been the ultimate worship point, that you are the object of our worship, that we can now know you fully and clearly. And no matter what we've come from in our backgrounds, no matter what we're working from or what we're driven away from, Father, we know that your arms are always available, that there's room in the family of God. And so Jesus, would we not be people who worship ourselves? Would we not be people who glory in ourselves? Would we not be people who try to find joy in ourselves? But would we be people that find joy in you. Jesus, we love you. We're grateful to know you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.